This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project. Teachers teaching teachers. Answers, a production of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Canadian teaching royalty, Adrian Gear. You can find Adrian's teaching books all over the place in the Great White North. If you're not familiar with her and if you're listening from the States, she also has published on Stenhouse, and I'll give you links to her work in the show notes because you're going to want to dig into her work after listening to this interview, if you haven't already. And I'll get to that in just a minute. First, a poem. Lines on a Skull by Ravi Shankar, a haiku erasure of Lord Byron's lines inscribed upon a cup formed from a skull. Start, spirit, behold the skull, a living head loved earth, My bones resign, the worm lips to hold, sparkling grapes' slimy circle, shape of reptiles' food, where wit shone of shine, when our brains are substitute, like me with the dead. Life's little, our heads sad, redeemed in wasting clay this chance. Be of use. So I mentioned this in our interview partway through, but I know that right now, If you're listening right now, during 2022, January, February, whenever this comes out, I know this is a really weird teaching time, and it has been weird for a couple years now, and it's really hard. And the thing I keep hearing is from teachers is it's just hard to add one more thing when it comes to professional development. So this is why I sought out Adrian Gear. Um, I'm living in Canada now, so... She's very much ubiquitous. Her work is ubiquitous up here. So I was already being faced with, but also like when I read into her work, uh, reading power, writing power, and then she has a new book that we talk about as well um, about something called brain pockets. The thing I noticed is she really makes the complicated work of teaching reading, especially the abstract and the more abstract skills. She makes it so concrete and it's really, I guess what you would call teacher friendly. It's easy to add into what you already do. And as you hear our conversation, you'll totally see why. So let's just get on to it. Before I throw to the interview, this one has a little bit of an epilogue because I had sent Adrian some of the topics I planned on covering and then we didn't get to all of them. And after I thought the interview was over, we kept talking and she said something that was really, really cool. And I asked her if I could keep it in and she said yes. So there'll be a little break at the end of the conversation and then we'll go to the epilogue and then you'll hear my wonderful voice at the very end. So anyway, here it is, my interview with Adrian Gear. Originally, um, when I was when I was developing reading power, it all came about by um, just feeling like our our students in our school weren't. Comp- it all was grounded in comprehension 
practice. And what we noticed in our school was that our students were reading, decoding, but not understanding the text. So it was all about how can we increase our comprehension instruction and help students to make sense of what they were reading. And so I started looking into what does that look like? Like what is comprehension instruction? Because in my, back in the day when I was a student and when I was a beginning teacher, comprehension was always comprehension questions. Read this, answer the questions. And they were all often very literal questions like what's the boy's name where did he grow you know what, what street did he live on and so like many kids I um, figured out that I could read through a passage um, get no I could I could get all the answers right without reading through the pa mm -hmm. passage so you look with a question first and then you find the answer and you get it right even though this is reading comprehension you haven't even read the text because you were able to find the answers just by pulling out the literal. And so I started exploring, um, you know, how do we help teach comprehension mm -hmm. rather than doing comprehension? Yeah. And I guess if that's, if that's something that, you know, going back to your original question, like describe reading and, and writing power, um, I feel like what I'm trying to do with, with my books and with my work is help move away from the doing. To, mm -hmm. And there's a big difference between doing reading and teaching reading. And there's a big difference between doing writing and teaching writing. And I think, you know, teacher pay teachers and Pinterest and all of these shiny objects <laughs> There's a lot of shiny objects that we can grab and you can basically fill an entire school year doing, doing reading, doing writing, but not really teaching. But at that point, I didn't really know what, what is teaching comprehension? What is that? So, you know, I, 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 I really am grounded in the work of David Pearson and his research around, um, you know, effective reading strategies. And then when I started to go into classrooms and start teaching this, I felt like if I went into the class and, you know, wrote on the agenda comprehension instruction or <laughs> comprehension strategies, you know, it, it doesn't really sound very <laughs> interesting to kids. And now after recess, we're doing comprehension instruction. So I just came up with that term reading power um, because it sounded more appealing and mm -hmm. like you pointed out, empowering, right? Mm -hmm. It gives kids the power to make meaning from text on their own, or it gives kids the power to become a writer. So I think the word power, um, and it's sort of in all of my books now, that's the, in all of my titles, um, I think initially it was because I wanted it to be appealing to students, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, over time, it's just become that empowering uh, it, uh, message. <laughs> yeah. And to build off of what you're saying really quickly, uh, it's not, I, one, a good example would be connections. 
even in college, I remember that our professors teaching us about text to self, text to text, text to world connections, and how that's something we should do with students. And what I see happening, or what I maybe did early in my career too, is it was more assigning than it was teaching, to your point. But the thing that I think that you're also doing is you're leveling up the teaching if you're already teaching. Like if you're already teaching how to make connections, in Reading Power, there's some really great lessons about how to make meaningful connections that will deepen your understanding of the text, not just make connections so that you fill out the handout and show me that you know how to do something. So, so that's, that's such a good point. And what's really interesting about just even that strategy, making connections, um, when Reading Power first started and connect, making connections was a fairly new concept for me and it was new for the kids and for the teachers I was working with. And so I spent the first little while just doing connections. And I was so excited when a child put up their hand and said, I'm making a connection and then they would, you know, say something and I would like, wow, this is, this is easy and it's awesome and the kids are engaged. But then I have this, you know, when you have these, mo these moments in your teaching life and you look back on them as sort of pivotal. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I have been teaching connecting for, you know, in the, I think the book maybe was, even the book was out and, um, I was actually doing a demonstration lesson. So I, I would go into schools and I would go into a classroom and then there'd be like a few teachers watching. And I was doing a, I was reading a book. It was a, I think it was a grade four or five class. And I was reading a book called The Worst Best Friend. And it's basically about you have a BFF and then they dump you and they start hanging out with someone else. And so that's a good book for making connections because kids have experienced that. They've either been the one on the, you know, on the end of being dumped or they're the one that's moving, you know, mm -hmm. it's a good connect book. So I'm reading the book and there's a moment in the story that's like the moment where it's a lunchroom scene and one boy's coming in with his lunch tray mm. and the, the his best friend or old best friend is at one table and the new cool kids at the other table. And they're both beckoning the child, the, you know, the kid to go. And I always pause at that moment. And I say, you know, this is a really important moment in the story because a decision is going to be made. And whatever that decision is, where he sits for lunch <laughs> will have a big impact on him and the other two, on, on the person that's, that's left. So I really make a connection to this. So like I'm kind of building it up and then I want the teachers to be listening and I want the kid. And so this boy puts up his hand and he goes, I'm making a connection. And I said, what's your connection? He goes, I'm making a connection to the hamburger that the kid has on his lunch tray. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, cause yeah, last night my dad, he was like making hamburgers. And then he was trying to watch the hockey game and then they burned. And then my mom came. And so, so I think most teachers who have taught connecting have experienced this. I call it like the, like the sidebar, right? They, they just are looking at a picture. They're not really thinking of the story and they're just off. Mm -hmm. They're off. And then what makes it even worse is then 
other kids start putting their hands up and going, oh yeah, my dad, I am my dad for a hamburger, this burn it. And, and in, in, in like five seconds, the book is off the radar screen of all the kids. They're not even thinking about the story. Yeah. So this had happened to me for years. But it was in that moment where I was watching this lesson from the eyes of the teachers who were watching me teach. And mm -hmm. I kind of have this out of body experience. And I looked down and I thought, okay, something is wrong here. This is a story about best friends and you're making a connection to burnt hamburgers. <laughs> so I left that day feeling awful. And then I was thinking to myself, like, what can I do to help them bring it back to the book, like bring, you got to come back to this book. You've gone way, way far away. So I kept saying, bring it back to the book, bring it, bring it back to the book. And I love acronyms. So their spells bib, B-I-B-B, -B, bib, simple. So I went to the dollar store, bought a baby plastic bib, and I wrote B-I-B-B -B -B with a permanent marker. And I brought it to my class. I didn't go back to that class because I was just doing, a, you know, a single lesson. Mm -hmm. I brought it back to the class and I hung it on my our little board, but I didn't say anything about it. I just hung it there and I waited. I just waited for someone to make a burnt hamburger connection. That's my term now. <laughs> and it, it, it literally did not take long. It was very quick, probably like, the first book I started reading, I'm paying attention, right? I'm listening because I want someone to make a burnt hamburger connection. And they did. And I said, oh, okay, I'm going to stop you there. You've probably noticed I have a bib here. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what this is. This is a reminder to all of us that sometimes we get sidetracked and we make connections that are not connected to the heart of the story. Mm. The heart of this story is your best friend just dumped you and is hanging out with someone else. And you're talking about burnt hamburgers or whatever it is you're talking about. You got to bring it back. So that bib, like just something super simple like that, I use that all the time. I use it constantly. It's the same for asking questions. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where, you know, you're reading a you know, kind of a, maybe a, a story about homeless people or, um, you know, just uh, issues. Mm -hmm. and, and kids just ask these questions that are, and you, you it's so hard not to have the face, right? Like you have <laughs> to face. really control your face because it's almost like you want to look at them and you go, why are you asking me that right now? Like, that has nothing to do. So now, now all I do is I say, oh, we better bib it, better put on our bib, bring it back. What's this story about? It's not, you know, and, and so just simple things like that, again, is just layering it up because I think many teachers experience irrelevant questions, irrelevant mm -hmm. connections, and we want to constantly be, be helping our kids understand why are we doing this? See, this is this is all about purpose. Is all of you can't just make connections for the sake of connections without telling the kids why. That's the difference between assigning and teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Teaching you assign and then teachers 
say, how does this connect to what we really need to be thinking what about? What is this for? What's why the point? Are we... And then that's why, so this is something that I'm, I've been really working on the last couple of years in, in teaching, and it's kind of connected to inquiry. It's called reflective habits of mind. I just love that phrase. Mm -hmm. And reflective habits of mind is just simply um, adding a little reflection time at the end of a lesson and just pausing and saying, hey, great job, everyone. Let's just take a moment and reflect. Why were we doing this again? Oh, that's right. Because when you connect to a story, it's more meaningful. <laughs> that's why we're connecting. We're not connecting just to say, I'm, you know, this reminds me of my friend. But, but, but we can get into that, right? That happens. It does. It happens with everything. You just, you're, you're surfacing. Yeah. And, and I'm always about going deeper. And instead of ping-ponging away from the deeper meaning, drawing people in. And one yes. of the strategies that I think that you're working on recently that I found extremely magnetic would be the brain pockets idea. As you're, can you talk a little bit about the thinking structures, specifically the brain pockets? Yes. So brain pockets, there's always a story. <laughs> so here comes another story. There's always a story about how things developed in, in, my, in my practice. But but brain pockets came out of, um, you know, a particular student in my class. And, you know, interesting when we were making connections. This child was kind of living in uh, a bit of a outer space, Star Wars, um, lightsaber, all that. He, he just lived in that world. He loved it, right? So he was a really unique kid. But it was challenging sometimes when we would be reading a story and you know making connections and things because his connections you know nine times out of ten would somehow be connected to star wars so he he had some you know he just and it was it was never really about he wasn't trying to be funny or silly it was just kind of where he lived so one day we were doing a a unit unit launch into Canada. We were starting a social studies unit looking at Canada. So I had given all the kids a map of Canada, pictorial map. They were with partners, they were all over the room and they were making connections to Canada. Like, is there a place that you recognize? Do you visit? What do you know about this? Like we were just doing a bunch of connecting. Then we came back to share. So, so he's the kind of child when he puts his hand up, I avoid eye contact because you kind of know that whatever he's going to say is going to take you far away. So this was before Bib even came into being. So he puts up his hand and I call on him and he said, Miss Kira, I'm not sure if you knew this, but about a month ago, some alien ships landed in Halifax. And I said, and he said, yes, they did. And they kidnapped all the grandmothers in Halifax. So if you go to Halifax right now, there are no grandmothers living there. And then he says, and so my connection, I was thinking, okay, where's it? He goes, my connection is I'm really glad my grandmother doesn't live in Halifax. So I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this child and I'm thinking to myself, so I'm thinking a couple of things. And you know, by this time, the rest of the kids are kind of used to this. And 
So I was thinking to myself, like, first of all, like, okay, that child has such an imagination, like unbelievable. Like imagine a story, like grandmothers getting kidnapped, like, wow, that's wild. So, so, but he's ruining my lesson again. So I needed to figure out a way to kind of, again, it, it's a similar thing to the bib, but I, I left that day and I started thinking about our brains. And I started thinking that this child spent most of his time kind of in an imaginary world. And I wanted to try to get him out of that world for certain times of the day without being kind of like, well, in my head, I wanted to say, why are you talking about that? It's, a, you know, that's a silly connection. It doesn't even make any sense, but you don't want to do that in your class. So I came up with this. I started kind of thinking about, you know, our brains have these different pockets, these mm -hmm. different places that we, we go to when we're connecting. And when we're connecting to a map of Canada, we're likely not in our imagination area. We're thinking about facts that we know about Canada or we're thinking about experiences. So I started kind of playing around with this idea of brain pockets. And I started to think about, okay, we have three major pockets in our brain that hold our thinking. One is memory, one is fact, and one is imagination. And depending on the book that we're reading, we're going to find our connection in different pockets. If we're reading a book about friendship, we're likely in our memory pocket. If we're reading a book about Canada, we might be in our fact pocket. If we're reading Star Wars, we're in our imagination pocket. So our brains have all of these different thoughts but if we could try to kind of get the kids to visualize these three things and give them names, I always say mm -hmm. if we can, we can name something, it becomes more tangible for them. So then I brought that back to the class and I started introducing, you know, brain pockets and talking about where we find our connections. So what's really interesting with the text to text, text to self, text to world, I often do text to memory text to fact, text to, like, we kind of use that, like, can we find, because sometimes you can go into all of your pockets. But I said, you know, the other day we were looking at Canada and we were talking and, and you know, we were, we were making connections and someone made a connection to, you know, grandmothers in Halifax getting kidnapped. And I said that, you know, that's such a great story, but it's kind of the wrong pocket for that particular thing it's not the it's not a bad place to be it's kind of in the wrong pocket so a couple of days later this little boy actually came up to me and he's like you know Miss Gare, I'm really thinking a lot about brain pockets and I said oh that's great he goes yeah you know the imagination pocket I said yes he goes I think I live there <laughs> and I'm like yes you do and it's not a bad place to live no as long as you know that sometimes we, we need to move into the other pockets, right? So that brain pocket started with reading power. But then all of a sudden, when I started looking at writing, I started thinking, oh my gosh, this is the perfect 
parallel and, and pairing to talk to kids about, okay, if they're already thinking about, they already understand brain pockets for reading, go to the place you know to make your connections. What a great way to introduce them to where do writers get their ideas from? Mm -hmm. Right, because we have so many ideas swirling around in our head, and sometimes it's hard to figure out what am I going to write about today. That's probably the the hardest thing when it <laughs> when a student looks at a blank piece of paper and says, "I got nothing. Like <laughs> I yep. got nothing to write about." And and so then how do you how do you help them? So I I start introducing so so where I use brain pockets with writing is I. I've done journal writing for a long time, mm -hmm. writer's notebook. But journal writing, when I look back on it, often was tell me about your weekend. You know, that's kind of mm -hmm. standard practice for journal writing. And it tends to be this list, a boring list. I did this, I did that, I did this. And then we have to read them, right? Which is painful. And I almost feel like journal writing is counterproductive in a way because you're mm -hmm. teaching these great lessons in your writing class, but then you're giving kids these, I don't know, but I love journal. To me, journal writing means I don't have to teach. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect thing to pull out on Monday morning when you're not organized and you give, you know, like we all do it, right? But how can we turn that journal free write? Because it is a bit of a free write into something a little bit more um, a little bit more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so then I brought in, so my students get brain pocket notebooks at the beginning of the school year. And rather than doing journal writing, we do brain pocket writing once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. And so they get to choose what pocket they want to be in. Do you want to write a memory? Do you want to use your memory pocket to, to do your, you know, write about what happened on the weekend? Or do you want to tell me about dinosaurs or airplanes um, or do you want to tell me about Star Wars and grandmothers getting kidnapped from Halifax and so it gives kids this a, a way to kind of and the other thing that irritates teachers I get this asked all the time what do you do about kids all they want to write about is video games perfect brain pockets let them write about video games if they want to but now we have to be very clear Mm -hmm. Are you writing a memory pocket story about video games? Are you fact telling me facts about video games? Or did you get sucked into a video game and you can tell me that? So I, if you want to write about video games, go for it, right? So it gives kids, there was a boy in grade one obsessed with airplanes, obsessed with airplanes. Like he knew every name of every airplane, every, like everything. And when he, when I taught that class mm -hmm. writing, it was like his world, like every time he'd see me, he's, are we doing, are we doing brain pocket writing? Because he just wanted to tell me everything he knew yeah. about it. how many numbers and wing size and, and he's in grade one. Yeah. He's just like spewing all out. I, I, so it's given, it's given teachers this whole new take on on journal writing such mm -hmm. a more meaningful alternative but I love that you can use brain pockets with reading and writing it's a really flexible tool and yeah. I also like that it mirrors something that I see happen a lot in professional writing 
like I, one of my favorite kids book authors, Jess Keating. Um, she has a she has brain pockets, but she has that one topic. She loves science, especially biology, and that's what I think a lot of her background was in. And then sometimes she'll use the imagination pocket. Sometimes it's informational. Sometimes it's kind of a little bit of in between. Oh, absolutely. You can totally, yeah, merge the pockets. And right? I love that the brain pockets gives kids the power to do something that writers do. They have a favorite thing that they, like J.K. Rowling didn't write Harry Potter and then write about everything else and never go back to it. The totally. subsequent books after the series were a different brain pocket or a different part of this one brain pocket. and. So I, I love it. I think it's a flexible, I think it also complements and creates a funnel. It complements something like a heart map. You have all these things yes, in your heart yes. map, for example, but how do you write about them? And a lot of times kids will just do an all about, but the brain pocket gives a funnel through which you can take something in your heart map and really process it into different kinds of writing too. Different kinds. So that's what the other, other great thing about brain pockets with writing is it mm -hmm. allows us to introduce kids to so memory pocket is personal narrative and fact pocket is information or nonfiction writing. And then imagination pocket is story writing. So it really gives also that ability, like you said, to focus on the different kinds of writing. Because we often, like you said, some people are there, they love writing facts and information. And so that's their drawing from mm -hmm. their fact pocket more often right yeah can I unpack I want to take a minute to unpack the stories that you told and use it to help teachers think about how we can do an Adrian gear version of what our own version of what you're doing um because I noticed that a lot of your great lesson ideas have like that painful childhood origin story that happens in superhero <laughs> adventures <laughs> there's a painful origin story and then you use that to become the hero teacher. The, the thing that I'm thinking about is like you have these pain, you had a good strategy that you came into each of those lessons with. But just like every teacher who's ever tried out a strategy from any book we've read, we don't always bring the same charisma or the same what we taught before to the lesson that we're trying from the book that we read. And the, it doesn't always go the same way that we thought it would when we were reading the strategy. And I think that happened in both of these instances. But what you do is after that painful moment, you do something as a teacher. Can you talk about like what happens after that painful moment that leads into you coming up with a strategy that will fix things or level things up? Well, I, I love how you phrased that, but like it bothers me when lessons go sideways. And it bothers me that what I'm trying to achieve has not been achieved. Even if one child is not like doing what I, what I hope. And so I will always like drive home from school and I'll reflect like I'm, I am in a constant state of reflection. So that's why I, my reflective habits of mind in my classroom is something that I want to do, but I'm in a constant state of reflection, which is kind of a blessing and a curse, really, mm. because you know, you're constantly sort of going, okay, how can I do this differently? How can I change this up? How can I make this simple so that that child who 
told me about his, you know, the grandparents in, in Halifax, um, doesn't feel badly that they got off track and mm -hmm. always trying to redirect. Um, I, I feel that like I, I spent the first part of my teaching career assuming way too much. I think mm -hmm. we assume kids know what we're talking about. They, we assume that they have the knowledge or the background knowledge to help them. And, you know, I would do a lesson. I teach a lesson really kind of quickly because it was always like, okay, they got to get to work. They got to get to work. And then you'd send them off. And then half of them go, well, I don't know what, what am I doing? I don't know what to do. And I would think to myself, like, what am I, what am I doing wrong? that they that no one seems to understand what I'm yeah. saying whenever kids say that to me I'm like you and me both my friend <laughs> I don't know exactly. what to do now either so I think over the years it's just this I just want to do right by them I want them to learn and I want them to grow and I want them to love love learning so it's mm. always about how can I that's my motto set them mm. up for success can I jump in with like a little bit of leading the witness? I like you, you write a lot and it's really apparent from the book lists and from just talking to you that you read a lot. I wonder if also there's a little bit, maybe it's just automatic for you at this point. Do you think that your writing and reading experience informs what to do next? As in like, um, these kids are making connections that send them in burnt hamburger directions instead of bringing it back to the book. So what is it do you is there something that's happening where you're like what do readers do when this might be a problem what do they what do good readers do instead and then maybe like your writing reading experience kicks in same thing for writing is that a part of the process do you think yeah yeah i think well i think it, it par, par, partially is like i i am an avid reader and i've always been and i grew up with you know with a house full of books and a dad who was an English teacher. I mean, I was very, very, very fortunate in that I was surrounded by that. So I think that that, that love of reading, I wanted that to spill over into my students. I wanted them to love reading too. Um, but I'm also in a book club. And I mean, I know it's, it seems cheesy and they all they do is sit around I'm and drink wine and stuff. But, but our book club is and, there, and most of us are teachers in mm -hmm. the book club and we've been meeting together for like almost 20 years like mm -hmm. a long time and we've read a lot of books and I I had this moment early days of book club where I was thinking like we're all sitting around and we're mm -hmm. actually having these really rich discussions about books and about the characters and about our feelings connected to the stories and and our connections and our wonderings and our you know, moments of, you know, surprise, all, like, like, it's a really great discussion. And then I'm going back to my class. And we're reading a chapter of Charlotte's Web, and I'm giving them comprehension questions. And then I'm asking them to like, be the word finder, or the, you know, the connector, all those roles, and then they're making dioramas. Like, uh, I don't think our book club has made one diorama. Not even one? Not one. And no one in our book club hands out comprehension questions. Mm. They don't. So what I gained from those discussions, those rich discussions, 
I wanted to bring that into the class. Mm -hmm. Why, why would we read a book and then ask the kids to tell us what it was about? I just read it. You know, mm -hmm. don't tell me what it was about. Don't tell me what the story was about. Tell me what you're thinking about the story. There that, it is. That's it. Like, I want to know how you're feeling about it and mm -hmm. what it reminded you of and what you're wondering about this character. And to me, a lot of that comes from choosing really great books. Mm. Right? So let's flip the other side of the coin. What kinds of things on the writing end? You write a lot. Um, what kinds of lessons have you learned just from being a writer that influence your teaching? Um, being really clear, mm. really, really explicit. And, you know, I, I teach teachers, I teach kids and I teach teachers. And there's not a lot of difference. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but if I'm trying to get my kids to, you know, to understand and I, I make it really clear, I give analogies, I, I have acronyms, I kind of make it fun. And then when I'm doing that with, with, with a teacher audience in mind, I want it to be practical. Teachers mm -hmm. want practical. They don't want a book that's filled with theory. I mean, theory is good and I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, they're a really important book, but, but you know, they, they, I think when I'm writing, I'm always, I, I'm writing a book for me. I want a book that I can pick up like a, a first year teacher. What, what would I want in a, for a first year teacher mm -hmm. or a seasoned teacher who just needs a little, you know, a little shake up kind of thing. So I'm, I'm always thinking of my, my audience, I think. And that's what I say to the students when, as writers, you, if you're asking me how long it has to be, is this for my report card and, you know, how many pages, you're asking the wrong questions. Don't mm -hmm. ask me how long it has to be. It's how long it is. Like, <laughs> but writing, I, I always talk to kids about writing is a gift. You are mm -hmm. gifting your reader. Mm -hmm. And when you gift your reader, you want to make it a good gift, Right. You want to think about when you go to a birthday party and you go buy the gift and you wrap it up and you give it to your friend, you're super excited and you watch them open it. That is what writing is. And so I want my readers, my teacher readers mm -hmm. to read my book and think like, this is, this is a good gift. I'm glad I'm using this book. I think that that really comes through as I, as a person who reads your books, I think that really comes through the lessons feel like a gift. Some of them are like, Oh, I could just start teaching this. Some of them are, Oh, this is what I could be doing to adjust this lesson. I'm going to add in the, bring it back to the book strategy. And this is actually really, as we bring this interview home, this is one of the biggest reasons I wanted to talk to you is because like with, this is such a brutal stretch of time with the pandemic. It was brutal before the pandemic too. And it threw gas on the fire. Um, and a lot of folks just don't feel like they can handle one more thing, but your work is, feels different. Um, whether it's literacy, writing, inquiry work or deeper thinking, learning, using these structures, your work is easy to implement. It fits into what a teacher might already be doing. So, with all this in mind, with teachers being overwhelmed, 
Uh, what advice can you give for teachers who might be struggling to tread water? Wow, that's, you know, that's such a, it's such an important question to ask. And I think teachers need to give themselves a break. And I think what kids need right now is care and compassion and community. And, you know, I, I, I get the panic conversations from teachers like, the grade twos are nowhere near they, where they should be right now. And it's halfway through the year and, and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking about grade twos three years ago. And everyone is like, no grade two child is where they're supposed to be. No one is where they're supposed to be, but everyone's in the same situation. So I feel like we need to just take a breath and build a very, very compassionate class community and read lots of stories, take the kids outside, um, build that kind of comfort place for kids because they need it. You know, I think they need it. And teachers need to not feel, I think, not feel that huge amount of pressure that you know, I've got to bring my kids to this place by the end of this grade. Um, everyone's on their own journey. Figure out where they are. Teach, be responsive. I always talk about look, teaching with your head down instead of teaching with your head up and grabbing shiny objects. You got to look at your kids, right? You got to look at your kids, figure out where they are, and then just, you know, make learning meaningful but not with that kind of, um, yeah, the pressure I think that we put on ourselves, then the kids feel that, right? If we can just, you know, really be focused on, on compassion and community and care, I think that, you know, that's a, that's a important piece. Social emotional learning is huge right now, right? It really is. And so um, I think that's, that that can be just as valuable as you know whether they know the capitals of Canada. Please leave a little pause after a perfect ending line because it makes it easier for me to edit. Okay. <laughs> so sorry for the awkward pause there. That was great. That was really good. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you didn't ask me about my writing. I have this I story about how I do, write my, how I'm, how I write. But yeah, I just noticed that the, the arc was hitting at a certain point in the conversation. I was like, oh, this would be a perfect point to jump. So I kind of jumped around in the notes. A yeah, little no, bit. you did a good job of segueing <laughs> all in, but I was just going to say, I, I was just going to tell you that I, I have no, I actually have there's this idyllic sort of um, vision of what a writer is that they have this beautiful office with the, you know, the lighting yeah. and the, the notebooks and the pencils, and everything like that. And like, literally I wrote most of my books in hockey rinks. In hockey rinks. In hockey rinks. The, I would say the first five were written in hockey rinks because I had two boys that played hockey mm -hmm. and I was a hockey mom and I would drive them to hockey and I'd bring my laptop and I, I would write my books. Like there was no mm -hmm. little office with lovely music. <laughs> you are right. 
I think that writing is not as much about setting some, some for some people it is every writer is different well, is why I like to ask people, the question every writer is right. totally different well and also some writers that's their whole job mm -hmm. right and I was I'm writing on the side of my life yeah <laughs> right yeah and, but and the so, hockey games I think it's more about having a schedule and I think the hockey games maybe give the schedule exactly and that was it because I knew that and I was out that hour or hour and a half whatever during the practice I I had the time but just something interesting just I mean about how I write a book um like I think again there's a a, um, a misconception that a writer just says oh going to write a book today and like I never ever was ever kind of saying oh I really I really want to be a teacher who writes books like it wasn't mm -hmm. something in it wasn't like a plan that way but my problem is my brain gets so full and I have all these ideas that are so taking up so much real estate up there that I can't think about other things and so honestly, writing is my release of getting, yeah. of clearing, of clearing my head. And, and so it's a totally different experience to release rather than to create. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like it's, it's a funny thing. It's not <laughs> like I'm, I'm creating as I go. It's mm -hmm. like, I have to get this out of my head. Yeah. Some of the forefathers, I do this for the Ohio Writing Project, which is a national writing project site. And one of the founding fathers of the National Writing Project would say uh, something like reading or thinking is breathing in and writing is breathing out. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and that is, it is, but it's just, it's not even, it's not even breathing in a way. It's almost just like, it's almost vomiting it out. Mm -hmm. because I, but it's not in a, but, but it's like, I, I have to get this out of my head. So yeah, that was my interview with Adrienne Gear, plus some bonus content, I guess you'd say, about her writing process, or maybe anti-writing process, I don't know. It's, I just wanted to share it with everyone because the more I listen to interviews with authors and the more I interview people who write, the more I realize that there's not one writing process. And I mean, there are a few writing processes, but not everybody uses the same thing, right? So it makes me reconsider the way I teach writing. Do I teach it as one thing or do I teach a lot of different things for students to try? I'll let you be the judge of the answer to those questions. If you want to find out more about Adrienne Gear and her really, really amazing work and easy to implement work, check out our show notes. Um, also, you should check out our show notes so that you can become involved or even more involved with the Ohio Writing Project. It's really a magical group of people, and this is a great place where you can find your people. It's where teachers teach teachers. Okay, you get it. Let's just end this thing. Thank you so much for tuning in to Write Answers.